Welcome, my name is John Trapp. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ the King. So good to have you all here with us this evening. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would bless our time together. Lord, would you please be with us now as we consider all that we have heard read to us as we consider the story that your son entered into to save us and to rescue us. And we pray that you would draw our attention, draw our eyes, draw our hearts to him now. We ask that your spirit would help us in that. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in her seminal book entitled The Crucifixion, Fleming Rutledge writes, if sin is not exposed, named, and renounced, then there has been no justice and God is dishonored. And I don't know about you, but for me, especially even in the last few weeks, in our country and in our lives, there is, there is comfort to hear that. That God sees and knows all the wrongdoing, all of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the sadness, that it will be brought before his holy righteous throne and that something will be done about it. There is comfort in that, and yet there is also terror in that. Because if that is going to be done, if what Fleming Rutledge writes is going to happen, if God is going to be honored in the justice that he will have, if sin is going to be exposed and named and renounced, then that is terrifying for sinners like me and like you. And the question then is, can, can anything be done? And the story that Christians believe to be true is that God himself has stepped into the story, the true story of the world that he made to do something about justice and also the grace that we need. God's answer to that question is Good Friday. It's his demonstration that he does care deeply about justice. And Good Friday is also the time that we see the unspeakably deep, rich grace that is rooted in the love of God. Because on Good Friday, the one true, holy, righteous God makes a way for sinners to be saved. And he accomplishes that on the cross. It's the place where we just heard, read, Jesus himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. And we have been healed by his wounds on the cross. The cross. If we're honest, a lot of us are bored with the cross. For honest, we don't think we don't think much of the cross. We put it on our bumper sticker, maybe, or a little pendant on a necklace, or our earrings, or a journal. But in the first century, the Roman people were disgusted with the cross. The cross was not cute. The cross was an ugly emblem 
It was a weapon. The cross, the cross would have been an emblem that to us would be like a swastika or an ISIS flag. The cross was impolite, indecent, grotesque. If you told a first century Roman that the enduring emblem of their culture 2,000 years later was the cross, they would be deeply embarrassed and ashamed. The Roman politician Cicero in the first century writes this, the very mention of the cross should be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, and his ears. The cross was indecent, grotesque. It was the worst way to die. It's why Romans used it. Caused a great physical pain, great emotional pain, psychological pain, the pain of dying over a long period of time, a slow, agonizing death. And on the cross, a person was spread out for all the world to see. All their body, all of their shame, they could be mocked, they could be jeered, they could be ignored. So people passed by them and looked the other way. The cross was dirty and, and the Romans, they particularly enjoyed crucifying Jews in places that would feel particularly dirty to Jews like garbage heaps. Because they knew all of the ceremonial law that the Jews followed and they, they in order to even mock that, they would, they would take people and hang them on a cross in a place like Golgotha, which was a midden or defined an old dump for domestic waste, which consisted of animal bone, human excrement, botanical material, mollusk shells, pots, herds, and remains associated with past human occupation. And it's there on a garbage dump that they send Jesus. Jesus whipped within an inch of his life, blindfolded, mocked, spat upon, laid on a cross, pierced. Crucified on a garbage dump, naked in front of his mother. That's where they take Jesus. Have you ever wondered, God, are you at work? What are you doing? Never in the course of human history could you have asked that question so accurately. Because never in human history has it looked more so like he's not at work. And yet on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, with King of the Jews over his head, on the cross, he becomes a curse. The scriptures say, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. On the cross, he becomes a curse as he is actively at work. He is at work for the salvation of his people. He's at work to redeem lost sinners, to pay the just penalty that they could not. It was a poem written by a World War I survivor, unnamed, 
I can imagine that someone who would survive such a war would find great comfort to see the kind of God and the kind of Savior that Jesus is. He writes four simple lines. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. He is the only wounded God. The wounded God who, who even in his resurrection body still bears the scars of the nails in his hand. The scar in his side. Christians have a God who enters into our suffering in order to save us. And Jesus himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. In her book, When God Weeps, Why Our Sufferings Matter to the Almighty, Johnny Erickson taught it helped me to better imagine what this actually looked like for Jesus to bear his sin, in, to bear our sin in his body. Johnny uh, was paralyzed from the shoulders down from a horse accident when she was a teenager. She's lived the rest of her life as a quadriplegic and she speaks often about how seeing the suffering of her Savior, that he has entered into our pain, has brought her comfort. Listen to how she describes Jesus taking on our sin. From heaven, the Father now rouses himself like a lion disturbed, shakes his mane and roars against the shriveling remnant of a man hanging on a cross. Never has the Son seen the Father look at him so. Never felt even the least of his hot breath, but the roar shakes the unseen world and darkens the visible sky. The sun does not recognize these eyes. Son of man, why have you behaved so? You have cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, hated, lied. You have cursed, robbed, overspent, overeaten, fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. Oh, the duties you have shirked the children you have abandoned, who has ever so ignored the poor, so played the coward, so belittled my name. Have you ever held your razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drunk. You who hurt young boys, peddle killer drugs, travel in cliques and mock your parents. Who gave you the boldness to rig elections, foment revolutions, torture animals, and worship demons? Does the list never end? Splitting families, violating virgins, acting smugly, playing the pimp, buying pornography, accepting bribes. You have burned down buildings, perfected terrorist attacks, founded false religions, traded in slaves, relishing each morsel and bragging all about it. I hate, loathe these things in you. Disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? Of course, the son is innocent. He is the model of blamelessness itself. The Father knows this. But the divine pair have an agreement and the unthinkable must now take place. Jesus will be treated as if personally responsible for every sin ever committed. The Father watches as his heart's treasure, the mirror image of himself, sinks 
drowning into raw liquid sin. Jehovah's stored rage against humankind for every century explodes in a single direction. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? But heaven stops its ears. The sun stares up at the one who cannot, who will not reach down or reply. The Trinity had planned it. The Son endured it. The Spirit enabled him. The Father rejected the Son, whom he loved. Jesus, the God-man from Nazareth, perished. The Father accepted his sacrifice for sin and was satisfied. The rescue was accomplished. Friends, on the cross, the Lord Jesus drank the full cup of God's wrath to the dregs. Why would God do this? Why would God pay such a price? You only pay a great price for something you really want. Consider the cross, friends, and think of this from Hebrews 12 too, which tells us what Jesus wants. Let us look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The cross is God's proclamation, not just that your sins are paid, but that he deeply loves you. Jesus drank the full cup of God's wrath to the dregs so that we can have the cup of his blessing. He has done it for the joy set before him and that joy is him with his people. He has paid the price. So what do we do with that? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us to look to Jesus. Only he can save us from the wrath that we deserve and he has paid the price. Would you walk in faith that that is enough? So often we, we act and live as if that was not enough, that as, as if I need to do something else. All of that, all of that punishment, all of that pain on Jesus wasn't enough. I need to add to it. I need to add with my obedience, with my self-shame, with my penance. Somehow if I can add to that, then that's enough. Friend, believe that this is enough. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, stepping in to do this on your behalf is enough. So look to him in faith. Something that, I, that I've been thinking about a lot this past week, I heard another pastor say this to me, I've been chewing on it, it's been really helpful for me. He said, we need to meditate on the suffering of Christ because we know how to meditate on suffering. We know how to meditate on suffering, we will meditate on our own suffering and our own pain and it is good to be self-aware. And it is good to process that pain and that suffering with others, but we can so meditate on our suffering and on our pain that it embitters us to God and to others. So, meditating on our pain alone is not life-giving. But meditating on the pain and the suffering that Christ endured for the joy set before him, that is life-giving. So let us meditate on him. 
the one who went to the cross for the joy set before him, who endured it out of love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love revealed to us in the person of your son, Jesus. May we meditate on his commitment to us for our salvation. And may you bear all the fruit of his spirit through us as we consider all that he has done and how much you love your people. We pray this in his name. Amen.